Welcome to Real Personal Finance. I'm your host, Scott Frank, CFP, CFA charter holder, and founder of Stone Steps Financial. And I'm your host, James Canole, CFP, MBA, and owner of Root Financial Partners. The premise of our show is simple. Money can be confusing, but it doesn't have to be. Our goal is to answer real personal financial questions that we hear from our clients and our listeners. Each episode, we answer one personal financial question in a clear and understandable way. Because money is a tool. And when you understand the language of money, you can make better decisions to improve your financial life. Hey, James. Hey, Scott. Welcome to another week of Real Personal Finance. Thank you. Best time of the week. Yeah, man. Changing something. Changing the world. Changing Changing finance. everyone's financial lives one episode at a time. I think we have another question today, which is awesome. Love it. For those of you who have been writing in for questions, thank you. If you'd like to have your own question answered, please write into realpersonalfinance.co. We are super excited because we are, in a sense, showing you how we think about financial planning now versus just telling you. You're welcome to see what we mean by going to Real Personal Finance on YouTube, where you will see us populate what we call a scorecard. Anyone who asks to have their Question answered, we'll get to fill out a scorecard and start to understand your own elements of financial planning. Elements of financial planning simply help you understand some fairly complex numbers into a fairly simple system so you can monitor your own finances. Love it. Yeah. Love it. So check us out on YouTube, Real Personal Finance. Get to follow along as we're going through this and provide some more context to the questions that we're answering. And Scott, while you pull up, I should say the element scorecard for Alex. I'm going to read Alex's question. So Alex writes in and says this. He says, I'm wondering if I should change my 401k strategy from traditional to Roth. I'm a 35-year-old high earner making around $175,000 a year plus bonus. I'm currently maxing my traditional 401k, plus I receive a 5% match from my employer. I need to work another seven years to hit my financial independence number, which is $2.5 million, and I currently have $160,000 in my traditional 401k. When I run the numbers on compound interest, I show that I'll have somewhere between 1.2 million to 2 million in traditional balances when I hit 59 and a half, if I just continue getting my match, meaning no more personal contributions. I feel like if I continue to contribute to a traditional 401k, I will have a huge tax bill when I hit 59 and a half and I'm worried about RMDs. What should I do? Do I continue to take the tax deduction now since I'm a high earner or transition to a Roth to create more tax diversification? On a side note, I'm already performing Roth conversions each year at $6,000. I'm maxing my health savings account and I'm contributing to a brokerage account at one and a half or $1,500 per month. Thank you, Alex. All right. So that's Alex's question. And now Scott, you want to provide some context as to Alex's scorecard that he filled out? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So a couple things. First of all, if you go look at, watch the show on the YouTube channel, you're going to see, we're going to talk about income. And income as a whole, we're always looking at savings rate, living rate, or we're calling it burn rate right now, debt rate and tax rate. Alex didn't put in his tax rate, so we don't know what it is. We can guess where he's at, but I'm just not going to fill it out. He can fill it in and know this for himself. But if we go look at his total income, he's saving 41% of his total income. Now that's probably above and beyond what he even thinks the number is because we went ahead and included the match on his 401k, and then we increased his income by that amount. So when you're filling out your own scorecard, do it that way. 
But 64% of his income is going to savings, living, and debt payments, which means, what is that? 36% remains for taxes and I don't know what I'm doing with it money. Mm -hmm. What do you think? Yeah, agreed. That 30, and again, that's one of the things is these not theoretically, practically, all these numbers should add up to 100. You're either spending it, you're paying down debt, you're paying yep. taxes, or you're saving it. So yep. this should add up to 100. Typically, when people take their first guess as to how much they're spending, how much they're saving, how much they're paying in taxes, they don't usually hit exactly 100%. My guess would be, obviously, taxes at zero right now. It's not going to be zero. He's making a no. healthy income. And people tend to spend more than they think they're spending, even if it's those one-off things that tend to come up or, you know, life just has a way of costing more than we think it does sometimes. So I would guess it would be there. Agreed. The other main thing I'd say about looking at the scorecard, if you'll see these things like liquid term 1.9, qualified term 2.9, real estate 1.6, and then the total term 8.2. 8.2 is the number of years of assets Alex has divided by what he needs to live a year of life. Yeah. And the end result is he mentions financial independence, but financial independence for Alex will happen when he has enough assets that he can readily deploy to equal about 30 years of his need, right? So once he has 30 years of assets, he will be financially free. He currently has 8.2 years of assets. So he has, you know, a little ways to go, but he's doing great. He's over a third of the way there. And the compounding that he mentioned will help him get there faster. Yep, absolutely will. We'll dive into the question. Anything else on the scorecard you want to go over though before we jump into the specifics? Last thing I would bring up before we bring this down is we noted there's a little bit of debt on their balance sheet. And I see only, it looks like maybe just one-time salary for insurance for term. So we might want to touch on an insurance need here just to make sure he's protected and his spouse is protected. Yeah, I think that makes sense. You know, it's fun to talk about retirement and investing and how much income you can create and how much assets you can build if things go perfectly according to plan. But when something happens, if it's a disability or death or health event or whatever, we need to have those insurances in place to protect against that. So all this we're going to talk about is absolutely what could happen, but insurance is very important. When does something not go according to plan, James? I've never seen it in my life, but I've heard of it happening for others. So theoretically, I guess there's some fables about life happening, but yeah. All you have to do is write down exactly what's going to happen. And that's just magically happens. Yeah, there it goes. That's it. That's it. You just got to tell it what to do and then it does it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yep. 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 And in case that doesn't happen insurance Mm -hmm. is the answer. So I know that wasn't his question. So we're not going to spend a ton of time, but that is one thing that we noticed. We don't know if there's family, you know, there's a spouse. We don't know if there's children or anything else, but more of that there is important. But even so sometimes people be like, well, my spouse would be totally fine if something happened to me. Well, that's an instance where maybe just have a chat with them. Like, Hey honey, if I'm the main breadwinner and you're not the main breadwinner and I pass away, will you be okay? fairly inexpensive to protect my human capital in the years that we're accumulating capital. Yeah. Alex is 35 years old, could get very inexpensive. We don't know health. We don't know pre-existing conditions or anything like that. But in general, for average 35-year-old, very cheap to get lots of coverage. And he doesn't need that coverage for very long. He has a very healthy savings rate. And the more you're saving, the more you're building assets, the more you're building assets, the less you need an insurance because something happens to you. It's sad, terrible, but money's there. Assets are there. 
Unless you want to be your own bank, but that's a different discussion for a different day. That's a different discussion and we won't even go down that. <laughs> you can that go to TikTok for those answers. His question is this, should I do pre-tax? Should I do Roth? I'm concerned even as I look at projected growth on my pre-tax balance, these RMD things down the road. So I've got lots of thoughts on that. Where do you want to start? What's your initial reaction to the question? My initial, initial reaction to the question is just to remind people the different choice that we're making between the two choices. So let's just, can we just do a really, really simple example? We sure can. Let's just say James has a 10% tax bracket and he gets to save $1,000 today. James really has two choices. He can save $1,000 and not pay taxes. Now let's just assume that money gets to grow nine times. So in the future, it's worth $9,000 and James's tax bracket is still 10%. So in that instance, I put a thousand, James puts a thousand in, it grows to $9,000. And now he has to pay 10% on that. He'll pay $900, right? And then he'll have $9,100 left. Does I think it was sense? 10 times in this example. I want to do nine times. Okay. Then it would be 10% less than that. But yes, it's making sense. Well, whatever. Oh yeah. Sorry. You do, you do, you, I can't do math this late <laughs> in the afternoon. Okay. You're following along. Yes. Yeah. No, sorry. Nine grand right? 900 bucks, 8,100 bucks is what I have left. Yep. We're on the same page. Cool. Okay. So now instead, let's just take your thousand dollars and you'll do a Roth contribution. So you're going to pay 10% in taxes now. So you're going to pay a hundred dollars in taxes. You're going to have $900 invested and it's going to go nine times the size. So in the future, it's going to be worth 8,100 bucks. Yep. The math is the same. It's just In a sense, it's easier for us to understand that our future money, if we don't have to touch it again, we can just kind of fully rely on it. And our taxes won't change on us because we've already paid the taxes. Yeah. Right. So the choice that we're always making between Roth and pre-tax is a question of what are my future tax rates going to be compared to my current tax rates today? Yep. And I think that's the baseline understanding you need to have before you start trying to figure out, what do I do? Do I go Roth or or do I go pre-tax or do I do something in between? Like what's the right answer for me? Yep. Or do I want to have Roth and pre-tax and taxable, right? Because then that gives me a bigger pool of assets to play with, to make different choices, depending on what tax laws change in the future. So I think that's the kind of predicate I want to delay. And what do you want to say after that? I agree. I think that's a great place to start. And the hard part is most people, they get hung up on, well, where are tax rates going to be in 20, 30, 40 years? And the reality is we have no idea. What- oh, I, I know. Because I can put on this, like, I have this special hat that my Newsflash, Scott made Frank knows. Oil. Yeah. And I can just, I can predict the future. Awesome. Well, for Alex, what are Alex's tax rates going to be? No idea. No, you're getting some interference <laughs> but, there, I guess. But only because I'm not wearing the hat. If I was <sighs> home with, with Daxton... I could tell Alex the answer. Dax will know the answer, but until we can get him on the line, we don't know. We have no idea what his future tax rates are going to be. What I will say is, so he's on the FIRE movement, the financial independence, retire early is kind of the premise of his question. Yep. Those people that are practicing that, wonderful. I would say for them, it's almost, I shouldn't say always, but more often than not, they're going to be in a higher tax bracket today because they're making high income and wanting to save as much as possible And then retire. And if you're retiring and if you have the option to pull money from brokerage or savings, or you just need less to live on, 
you're going to be in a much lower bracket because yeah. Alex is making a very healthy income today. 41% of it is being yeah. saved. Very right. little of it's actually being spent. So today, to your example, Scott, because he's likely in a higher tax bracket today than he'll likely be in when he wants to retire, that would lead us to say you probably do pre-tax accounts. And not only that, but if you're going to retire early and you've got a bunch of money in pre-tax accounts, well, you've got a lot of room that you could spread out things called Roth conversions over. The Roth conversion is almost like tax arbitrage where we say, can I save money, let's say at the 24% federal level today? Because I have high income, I'm in that bracket. I don't know if that's his bracket, but it's probably not too far away. Yep. Can I save 24 cents on the dollar by putting money into a traditional 401k? Let's assume he retires in 10 years and he's in a 12% bracket. Yeah. Well, now if I take money out of my traditional 401k and put it into a Roth IRA, I pay 12% on the conversion to do so. Yep. But I saved 24% now to only pay 12% in the future. That spread the 12%, that's all profit to you. So typically you people win. who are approaching it that way, that's what makes most sense. Obviously it depends on their situation, but whenever there's a heavy mismatch between current tax rates and future tax rates, that's when the analysis gets a lot easier. Totally. Yeah. And to your point, that's a wonderful breakdown of how to think about it. If you're in a high income position today and you're planning on being in a much lesser one in the future. And then to that point, like there's kind of barbells on a spectrum. I'm holding up my hands. So like over here, if you're in super low tax bracket mode now, just starting out out of college and you have a savings rate, so easy just to choose the Roth because it just makes the most sense, right? And then if you're over here and you're in the 37% tax bracket and in a high income state, it almost always makes sense to max out those pre-tax accounts now. Just because yeah. it's just math. Like, and the chances of it being in your favor make sense. And remember, the choice isn't this one's definitely better than that one. It's if my rates don't change, my end result doesn't change, right? Yeah. Like it's really just what the change in the tax rate is in the future. So you're, you're always trying to predict the future and it's tough to predict the future. But I think that's a great lens that you gave. Yeah, um, a quick side note, anyone listening to the podcast, tune into YouTube so you can see Scott's amazing finger puppet analysis of yes. today in the future. Uh, real that? personal finance. Look Where us up are on. you on the spectrum? <laughs> so you, you do that with people and they get it every time. That just brings it into focus. One other thing I'll say is he's exactly right. As Alex is saying this, he's saying, geez, if I just plug in compound interest and look at what these contributions will do, this balance is going to grow and grow and grow. And yeah. he rightfully is saying, hey, at some point there's these things called required minimum distributions, yep. which today at age 72, any money you have in pre-tax accounts, you have to, with a couple stipulations, a couple nuances to that, but for the most part, any money you have in pre-tax accounts, you have to start distributing and if you have a sizable pre-tax account, so say Alex does this and he works for a long time and he has $5 million in his pre-tax IRA, he's going to be yeah. forced to start distributing that. And that is going to push you into higher tax brackets. Right. On the one hand, as we mentioned, he's going to have some time between the time that he retires and RMD age to actually implement a conversion strategy. Yes. Number two, they're pushing almost certainly RMD ages. Right now at 72, it's likely going to be at least 75 or later by the time Alex gets there. Yeah. And number three, yes, it's good to do tax planning. Yes, you don't want to just sit on your hands and do nothing. But at the end of the day, if you have significant RMDs, it's because you have a significant balance. It's almost like the person that says, I don't want to take this million dollar per year job because I'm going to pay such high taxes. Well, net, you're still going to have a lot of money after it. So yes, are there things we can do to keep those taxes down 100%? 
but it's also a relatively good problem to have in the grand scheme of things. It means you've done a good job. So I wouldn't let that, we say, don't let the tail wag the dog. Don't let the R&D tail wag the kind of current enjoyment or current planning dog, because there's a lot of other things we'd want to get right before even thinking about RMDs for someone who's 35 and has a long time in front of them. Another point to be made there, it's not something that's talked about too often, but let's say that he's 35 now, he retires. Let's say he gets there when he's 50, maybe accelerates his retirement, gets big bonuses along the way, saves more money, can retire earlier, goes super low tax bracket. You know, one of the potential solutions as well is you could turn on what's called a 72T distribution, which is a separate equal periodic payment. It's basically where the federal government with the calculator helps you annuitize how much payment you're going to take. It lets you take money out of your IRA without paying the 10% penalty before you're 59 and a half, but there's very specific strict requirements on it, but you don't have to do it for the whole amount. You can go put a specific amount of money in an IRA account, run a calculation on it and go ahead and do that to help fund your income early in retirement, especially when you're in lower brackets, because then you're just choosing to turn on an income stream for your own assets and you're choosing to pay taxes while taxes are low. It's kind of similar to doing Roth conversions, but you're using the funds to actually live off of that income rather than converting it for future consumption. Kind of a different idea for a different day, but one that's worth noting. Certainly worth noting. Yeah. And again, there's so many different, should you be concerned about RMDs go back to that? Sure. At some point, can we do the low, can we take advantage of the low hanging fruit to mitigate that? Yes, absolutely. But I would not say that should be the number one or even the top 10 of financial concerns at this point before. To that point, when we think about low-hanging fruit, it was kind of like we did get data, you know, guys, we are getting, and we appreciate, please give your feedback on like scorecards and how the show's going and what you guys like and don't like, because we want to always make it better for you. Looking at Alex's data with his spouse, it wasn't clear to us if the total income number is just his with his bonus or if it's his and his spouse's, because we saw there was like one 401k and there was one HSA that's a family contribution. So we got that. And then we saw one Roth conversion or one $6,000 contribution to a Roth. And so where I was going was, I just started thinking, man, you want to hit retirement as quickly as you can. You want to be maxing out your, you know, driving down your income as much as you can now, but still optimizing for the future. And my immediate thoughts were, okay, you're putting away how much to your 401k plus the match for the employer. And I just went like, is a mega back to a Roth available for you at work? I didn't know the answer to that. So I'd want to find out, right? Because if you can do a mega back to a Roth, this is a reminder for what that is. The maximum number you can put away, I believe this year, $61,000 to a 401k. And if I'm wrong on that number, please correct me, James. But just think of it this way, guys. 20500 is the max you can put in your 401k, either Roth or pre-tax. And then your employer, if they have a match, add that number to it. Take those two numbers in total and subtract those from 61000 That's the amount you have left over that could be after-tax contributions. To, an IR, to a 401k account. And if your 401k allows in-service Roth conversions, you could be putting way more into a Roth than just the 6k that you're doing to a brokerage account. So it was just one idea to see if you have available. And if you don't have it available, let HR know that you're interested. Because if it's a big enough company and enough people are interested, it works. Yeah. And then one little sad caveat there is don't think that because there's a safe harbor for you at work, you're automatically allowed to do this, that type of a plan, those after-tax Roth conversions, that gets tested by basically the plan itself is the simplest way I'm going to describe it to you. But enough people have to be doing it across the employment spectrum for it to be allowed. 
Yep. Yeah. More people have these options, especially at larger companies than know about it. So huge benefits to doing that. I will also say, and you may have said this, so I apologize if I'm being repetitive. We only see that Alex and his wife are doing one Roth contribution each year. If you're doing the brokerage account already, you're already not getting the tax benefit of doing that. So maybe just redirect that to fill up another Roth. 100%, right? Because even if you think about it this way, like they were doing what? It was like around 38 grand to the brokerage account. And then they're saving like, 81,000 total between 401k match yeah. plus brokerage. But I think brokerage huge is like- savings number. First of all, congratulations again on doing that. But then just start looking at like hierarchically, where do you put funds and why? And if your main goal is retirement. There's no other main goals. Pre-tax, HSA, Roths, if you can do them, those Roth conversions. And then like, do you have any room for after-tax conversions as well for Roth? Even if you're, and that's another thing to think about. Even if your company doesn't offer- If you're okay tying up the funds, you have to be careful because sometimes you go tie up so much funds in retirement accounts that then you don't have any taxable assets, which you guys are doing a good job of building taxable assets. So I'm kind of like waving my hand saying like, be careful in your choices here because I don't know you well enough to know what your main goals are, but you want to build up taxable assets. But at the same time, you can build up more after-tax assets. And if you just make after-tax contributions and you can't convert to Roth, but you're allowed to make that contribution in your 401k account. Well, then what happens is, is after tax money goes in and gets deposited. So I'm just going to make up a number. You put an extra 10 grand in your 401k. And let's just imagine that you only do it one time. And now when you go to retire, you have all those pre-tax money. You have that 10k you put in and then that 10k grew to 20. So now there's another 10k as well. But when you do a rollover to an IRA or you start looking at making distributions, that 10k of growth acts just like all the pre-tax money. And then the 10K that was after-tax contribution, you could technically roll that into a Roth IRA because it's after-tax money. So you can think of it that way to save as well. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So once you know your savings rate, then fill up the right buckets with that. And in many cases, yes, you diversify your investments, but also diversifying the type of investment account is is also great. It's going to give you options. You can- totally manage your withdrawals and retirement to be as tax effective as possible by pulling a combination from pre-tax, after-tax, and Roth accounts. So I wouldn't focus to our point on all in one or all in the other as much as I like the general approach. I wouldn't be too concerned about RMDs at this point. There will be a lot of planning in those gap years between retirement and RMD years to mitigate a ton of that risk of higher taxes and higher RMDs. Agreed. And the only thing I would add is is to to the point James already made, it's so nice when you have the ability to have like in a perfect world, in my mind, you have like a third pre-tax, a third Roth and a third taxable, because then it just gives the ability to do basically anything with tax planning, no matter like what Congress throws at you, you have a solution, right? If you're heavily weighted to pre-tax and it's all sitting there, you're kind of stuck, like your hands would get a little tied because you don't really have taxable assets to use to help with Roth conversions. So just be mindful about like, there's something to be said for being efficient in all three, rather than just having being dominant to one. Yep. Absolutely. Anything else you'd add to Alex's question here? We're going to throw it one more time, but I think that's... Look, see if you need life insurance. We kind of mentioned it at the beginning, but it looks like you just have one-time salary, which is kind of standard. Even when you're you know really simple salaried income, If you're the main breadwinner, especially for the family, as you're building your assets, it makes a lot of sense 
to protect your human capital. And when I say human capital, that literally just means the money that I haven't earned yet in my practice between now and when I retire, right? And the more money I save, the higher my savings rate is, which Alex has a high savings rate. The higher the savings rate, the less need he's going to have for life insurance in a fairly short period of time. But that doesn't mean you don't protect the human capital right now while you're saving assets to build your own. Because what happens is, is you trade human capital for financial capital, right? We just, we go work, we give our time and our energy and our talent. People give us money, we save money. And as we save more and more money, we have less need to use our talent, our time and our energy to create money because we have so much, we eventually just say, thanks, but no thanks. I'm not going to come into work today. Yeah. Yeah. Fully agree. And one last thing on my, we kind of skipped over this a little bit because you and I were talking before the show to see what he meant by this. He says, I need to work seven more years to hit my financial independence number of 2.5 million. I don't know. We don't know where that came from exactly. There's about 200,000 of retirement assets today. They're saving about 81 grand per year, including the match. It would take a 28.3% rate of return to get from 200,000 to 2.5 million in seven years. I don't know if that's a typo or we're missing something in the question. We did run this and said, look, if 2.5 million is the goal, you could get there in seven years if you get an investment that pays 28.3% per year. Extremely difficult maybe impossible to find. If you got 15% per year, you could do that in 10 years. If you got 6.6% per year, you could do it in 15 years. So as we look at that, how long is it going to take to get there? Part of it's based upon how much time do you have, not just so your own contributions can go in, but so that compounding can work itself out. and And it could be as easy as like, we didn't have your spouse's information in, so we didn't see it and we're missing a big piece. But this is why we do this and why we learn as we go. But hopefully the framework's helpful for you. If you were listening and you found this to be beneficial, please take a second to either share this with someone else or leave a review wherever you listen to your podcasts. Yeah. And check us out on YouTube. Do all that. Get connected wherever. And we love the feedback. So thank you for everyone submitting questions, leaving reviews, tuning in on YouTube, podcasts everywhere. And unless you have anything else, Scott, I think that's it for today. That's it. Have a wonderful week. All right. I'll see you all next time. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Real Personal Finance Podcast. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe and let us know by leaving a five-star review. And if you have a question that you'd like for us to answer, then head over to the Real Personal Finance website at realpersonalfinance.co. And there's a section on the bottom of each page there where you can submit your question for us to answer in a future episode. Thanks again for listening, and we'll see you next time. This podcast is for informational entertainment purposes only and should not be relied upon for a basis for investment decision. This podcast is not engaged in rendering legal, financial, or other professional services.